Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to Proverbs 15. Back when we were doing our systematic theology series, we did a couple of weeks of what we called theology proper, which simply means that the words we were saying were words about God, the doctrine, the teaching of God. And one of these sort of distinctives of GCA as a church and sovereign grace one of the attributes of God that we emphasize is that God is sovereign. We say that a lot. God is sovereign. And what we mean by that is that God can do whatever God wants to do anytime God wants to do it. He can do it anywhere, anytime he wants. He can do it with anybody he wants, and he doesn't have to do what he doesn't want to do anytime he doesn't want to do it. Everything is just completely up to God. But under the large heading of the sovereignty of God, we also talked about three omni-attributes. In other words, God is omniscient or omniscient, meaning that he knows all things. We also said that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere all at once. And since he's everywhere at all times, and since he knows everything that there is to know, since he is everywhere observing everything at all times, and then he empowers all things that occur at all times everywhere, he is also omnipotent or omnipotent. So omnipotent omniscient, omnipresent, that theology doesn't just come down to us from great theologues sitting in rooms considering what God is like. It comes straight from the scripture. We're not making anything up when we say that God is in complete control. But here, even in the Proverbs, in chapter 15 here, we're going to see Solomon start making references to God's absolute omniscience and omnipresence. He's not going to use either of those words, but the only way that he can use the words that he does use is if he believes that God is indeed omniscient and omnipresent. Therefore, that means, I said all of that for this reason, therefore, that means that our theology... Our outlook on God, the words that we say about God, how we view God, the doctrine, the teaching of God, our approach to who God is and what God is like, is just like Solomon's. Okay, that's pretty good company. Now, of course, I argue for the sovereignty of God from Genesis 1.1. As soon as you get to God decided to do stuff, well, that's God's sovereignty because there was nobody around for him to check with. Right away, he was doing whatever he wanted to do. And so he made things the way he wanted to make things. He spoke things into existence. There's that omnipotent idea again. He speaks and things just suddenly are. 
He speaks light into existence and life into existence. He creates animals and humans and plants. and So he's the creator of all things, the maker of all things, the decider of all things. You see that at the very, very beginning of the Bible, and you see that thematically all the way to the end of the Bible. When you get to Revelation 21, 22, New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, larger and more expansive than anything we've ever seen or could conceive of and yet God says that all his people are going to be gathered there and there's going to be no sun for day or light by night because God himself is going to be present okay what does that tell you it tells you that that's what God's going to do in the future and only he could do it because it is such an expansive project and that's because he is sovereign he decides he makes up his mind he does whatever he wants to do So this theology that we preach, that we believe in, that we advance about God being absolutely sovereign is not something we've just made up. It's not a theological construct that we just kind of decided on arbitrarily because somebody thought it up at some point in history and we all thought it was a good idea, so we all just glommed onto it. It's actually what is said consistently all the way through the Bible about God. So here in Proverbs chapter 15, we're going to start tonight in verse 3, and you'll see why. Then we're going to back up and look at verses 1 and 2. But verse 3 is about as sovereign a verse as you can get. There are a lot of verses in the Bible that speak of God's sovereignty that can only be read through the lens of God's sovereignty. There are lots of verses that we like to go to. We like to... Go to Ephesians 1. We love to point out God's absolute sovereignty in all things out of even Romans and the things we've been reading in Romans 9, 10, and 11 in God's control of human history. We love to show how God sets up one kingdom and tears down another. We see all of these examples of God's absolute sovereignty, but it just doesn't get more sovereign than chapter 15, verse 3 of Proverbs, where it says... The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. The eyes of the Lord. What is Solomon saying when he says the eyes of the Lord are in every place? I mean, you've got David himself writing, though I make my bed in hell, thou art there. David's writing that within the context of where am I going to run from you? Where am I going to go to get away from you? You are in charge of everything. You are everywhere. You are omnipresent. There's no way to escape your presence. But now Solomon kind of ups the ante and says it's not just the presence of God, but the eyes indicating the knowing of God, the knowledge of God, the observation of God, the fact that God sees and knows everything and that he sees and knows everything All at once. Somebody please explain that to me. You can't begin to. Which is why we say that God has characteristics like omnipresence. And while the concept of omnipresence is sometimes a little frightening and a little off-putting, I find it very, very comforting. And I'll tell you why. Yes, please do, Jim. I will. When I was a kid and I was taught as a little Lutheran boy to pray to God. I was also conscious of the fact that there were other people on the planet 
besides me. And I assumed that at any moment that I was attempting to get God's attention, so were a whole lot of other people. When I was praying to God, so were a lot of other people. So what are the chances then that God's going to hear my prayer while there's all these other voices? You know, I've reached the point in my ability to hear. I've reached the point in life and in age where it's easier to hear somebody if it's a one-on-one conversation, but if there's other conversations around us, that becomes like background noise, and it's hard for me to distinguish what's being said by the person right in front of me that I'm trying to have the conversation with. Anybody able to relate to that? Amen. Okay, so, so I imagine that God was like that. I thought, well, how can God with this cacophony of noise coming at him when I was a kid a young Lutheran boy I did not use the word cacophony nor did I know it but now that I'm a grown person with this cacophony of noise that is coming at God constantly how in the world is he going to listen to me how's he going to hear my prayer how's he going to hear my petition so it was actually comforting to me When I came to grips with the proper theology, the proper doctrine of God, when I understood that he was everywhere at once, but wherever he was, he was actually there. So much so that he could see whatever was going on. He could acknowledge, he could understand whatever is going on in all places at all times, which means God is individually with you, observing you, takes knowledge of you, so that when you pray, he hears you. When you hurt, when you petition him, when you cry out to him, he knows that you Individually, they are speaking to him. Solomon's going to say that as we continue through this chapter, that God hears the prayers of the righteous. He doesn't just hear it like a great mass of noise. He actually pays attention to what the righteous say when they pray to him. And of course, he can because he is indeed omnipresent and omniscient. If he is, in fact, all knowledgeable, then he is knowledgeable of my petitions. He's knowledgeable of my prayers. He knows my thanksgiving to him, but that also means that he knows my worship, my praise. He understands that when I am speaking well of him, that that it's me that's doing it because he's there. He sees it. He understands it. And so whether it's times of joy or whether it's times of trouble, God knows. God is there. God understands. And Solomon says that his eye sees it. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Now that is either a comfort to you, like I just explained, or that's a concern for you. Because the second half of the verse says, he is watching the evil and the good. Which means as part of his omniscience, as part of his omnipresence, as part of his knowledge of all things that are happening at all times and all places, he sees the good that's going on, he sees the righteous, he hears the prayers of those people who have pure hearts toward him, and he also sees every evil thing that people are doing on the planet. 
And because he knows all that, we see things like Paul writing, as we just did. We saw Paul on Sunday morning saying, don't take your own vengeance. Leave place for the vengeance of God because God says vengeance is mine. God's wrath will be poured out on the evil because he sees it all. Because he sees both the evil and the good. And he knows the difference. He can sort out the difference. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. So what does that verse essentially say? It says what we all believe. God's sovereign. God's in charge. God is everywhere. God hears everything. God knows everything. God sees everything. Therefore, you're not getting away with anything. Even the people who think they've gotten away with their sin because they were not immediately punished. The people who think, well, I probably got away with that. God didn't see that. God didn't react right away. So I probably got away with that. God not only saw you do it, he knew you did it and still knows you did it. And God doesn't forget these things. So with all that as background, then let's jump forward for just a moment to verse 11. Because in verse 11 of chapter 15, Solomon puts it this way. Sheol and Abaddon, which basically means death, the place of death, and the place of destruction. Death and destruction, now the NASB adds a couple of words and say, lie open, but that's the idea. Sheol and Abaddon, the place of the dead and the place of the destruction of the dead people, the destruction of souls, are before the Lord. God sees even that, very much like David saying, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. So the worst places where the dead go who are not going to be redeemed, even there, they are before the Lord. They lay open before the Lord. God is knowledgeable of what that is and everything that goes on there. So everything that goes on on earth, life on earth, He's aware of everything that goes on after life on earth. Everything that goes on in death is all also open to him. So Solomon's question is, Sheol and Abaddon lay open before the Lord. So how much more do the hearts of men lay open before the Lord? I mean, if he's not stopped by the deepest evil that exists in the universe, if he is not held back one whit by the fact that Sheol and Abaddon are, exist and that people are going there and death and destruction, and yet that is all in the omniscience of God, how much more are the intentions of people, the heart of people? Do you really love God? Do you really love him in your heart? Are you really committed to him? He knows. He knows your heart. He knows your heart better than you do. And so put those two verses together and you get this. You get the eyes of the Lord are every place watching the good, watching the evil. And among the evil, death and destruction are open before the Lord. So how much more would an omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God know exactly what's going on in the hearts of men? That means he's fully capable of judging the hearts of men. He's perfectly capable 
as the righteous judge of knowing everything that people have not only done, but the intention of their heart when they did it. And I think it's because of that, that understanding of God, that Solomon is also going to say in verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Okay, so people are sacrificing to God. You would say that's a good thing. We're instructed to sacrifice to God. In the Old Testament, bring your animals, kill your animals, sacrifice to God. And yet God would know whether that sacrifice is being done by somebody with a pure heart toward God or whether they have a wicked heart. And so if a wicked person is sacrificing to God, that becomes an abomination before God. But look at the second half of that verse. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Okay, so, so the wicked can kill animal after animal after animal and bring the blood to God and sacrifice, 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 and God sees those sacrifices as an abomination. But to the righteous person, he doesn't say a sacrifice of a righteous person is acceptable by God. Instead, what he says is the communion of a righteous person with God. The prayer, the taking of your life and your petitions and your thanksgiving to God is a delight to God, a great joy to God. Look at the contrast. Sacrifice is something you do. You do stuff in sacrifice, and you bring these sacrifices to God in obedience to the religious practice that God has laid out. And yet if you're doing it with a wicked heart, God says it's an abomination. But prayer is not like sacrifice because prayer is going to God recognizing your need of him, recognizing your dependence on him, going to him whether you're going to say thank you which is a recognition that he's the one that's supplying everything for you, or whether it's going to him because you're in trouble or you're in pain, or as I keep using this word, petitioning him, as you keep coming to him over and over, praying over the heartache and the pain of this life, all of those are ways of saying, I need you, God. I am in relationship with you. You are my father. I desire you in my life, or you're the only one that can help me. That is the way that Righteous people in their prayers toward God bring delight to God. But just doing the stuff, if you're just doing the stuff, but your heart is wicked, the omniscient God knows that. The God with the all-seeing eyes knows that. And the stuff you're doing, he says, is abominable to him. Then look at verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, distant from the wicked. He sees them. He knows. His eyes are everywhere. He knows their evil ways, but he's not in relationship with them. The second half of that verse says, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Okay, so why would God hear the prayer of the righteous? Because he's omniscient and he knows that the person who's praying is a righteous person. And so he's hearing those prayers which bring great delight to him because there's relationship between him and the righteous person, but there's no relationship between him and the wicked person, and therefore he's not listening, not responding to the prayers of the unrighteous. Verse 30. 
And all of that is rooted and grounded in God is sovereign. It's all rooted and grounded in he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent. His eyes are everywhere. He sees everything all at once. He's watching both the evil and the good. And he's hearing the prayers of the upright, the righteous, the good. He's responding to those prayers, but the evil are far from him. The wicked are separated from him. They're going to end up going to what we just read, into Sheol, into Abaddon. And even though they end up there, they're still not escaping him. Even that is open to him. So you get in some sense of the theology of Solomon. I know that so many of these Proverbs that we've read are just kind of practical and exhortations toward knowledge and Sometimes rather light comments, but here we get some insight into Solomon's depth of theology. He understood that God was absolutely sovereign. And as I said before, if your theology, if your doctrine happens to match Solomon, you're in a pretty good camp. Yeah? Yes. Okay, so Tom, would you do me a favor? Would you hand these out to anybody who would like one? These are just a little chart. It is not unique to me. It's something that I found, and I thought perhaps you all would find it useful. So I printed up a few of them to be passed out. I will also put this on my blog for those of you who are listening on the Internet. What is the date today? Does anybody know? October? October 16th? Somewhere around there. So if you go to my blog and... If you're listening to this sermon sometime in the future and you want to have a look at this chart, go back on my blog to October 16th, right around there, and you will find it. All this chart is, is a listing of every place in the book of Proverbs where you find comments about words and speaking. Because as soon as we start chapter 15, again, we're going to read Solomon saying things about talking, about how you talk, about the damage you can do with your words, and about the good things that you can do with your words. And if you've been listening to Proverbs at all so far, you know that this is a constant theme for Solomon. Apparently then, even in Solomon's day, there just were people who talked too much, who used their words to do all kinds of damage, all kinds of lying And there were people who understood how to use their words to exhort people, to lift people up, to instruct people. So let me help you understand this chart. On the left side of the chart, it says wrong uses of words. On the right hand, it says right uses of words. And then there are different subject headings with chapter and verse references after it. For instance, on the left-hand side, under wrong uses of words, Letter A is lying. And then you can find all of the places in Proverbs that Solomon writes about lying, having a lying tongue. Chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, that kind of stuff. Chapter 10, verses 18. So lying is one of the ways that you can use your words incorrectly. B says slandering, which is talking badly about other people. And then there are verse references there where you can go read about it. Under C there it says gossiping, talking about other people. 
passing on bad things about people when in fact you ought to be keeping your mouth shut. Constant talking is a theme that comes up regularly in Solomon's teaching. Constant talking, you'll find the references there for that. Being a false witness, which is lying, claiming that you saw something that you didn't actually see. The references are after that. Under the heading of F, there is mocking, making fun of other people, speaking ill of other people in a way that you are putting them down, that you are making fun of them. G is harsh talking or perverse or reckless or harsh or evil or sly words. H is boasting, bragging, speaking too highly of yourself, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. That's a concept that we've even seen carried over into the New Testament. Paul just talked about it in the book of Romans. Certainly you see it in the book of Philippians. You see Paul saying that we shouldn't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. I is quarreling, arguing with people. And actually, chapter 15, verse 1 is going to start introducing us to how to stop a quarrel. And it has to do with, again, how you use your mouth. Under J, we see deceiving, which is a kind of lie for the purpose of fooling somebody, usually in order to get them to do something you want, like give you money. L is ignorant or foolish words, words without knowledge, just You're talking so much that you're not even thinking about what you're saying, and then you end up saying things that can only be classified as ill-advised or foolish or just plain ignorant language. Now, on the other hand, on the right-hand side of the page, you'll see right uses of words. Under A, it says words that help and encourage And that's, again, what we're going to see in chapter 15, verse 1, where it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. So it's good to use your words in order to help and encourage people. Under heading B, words that express wisdom. That is how you pass on the wisdom you have gained. That is how you correct other people and lift other people up, reprove other people, is through the proper use of language. I think that that's why God gave us language in the first place. Language is a creation of God. The language that he gave human beings, I think, has twofold purpose. One is so that he could talk to us, so that we could think God's thoughts after him by hearing his words, so that he could speak to us And the other reason for the introduction of language among people is so that we could talk to one another and we can lift each other up and help each other and express the wisdom of God to each other or we can damage each other. We can harm each other with our words. Under the heading of C, we see words that are few. This is something Solomon brings up on four different occasions here where he says, just just don't talk so much. Let your words be few. Let your words be well thought out. Make sure that you're speaking intelligent words. And I don't know how many of you would admit this. I won't ask for a show of hands. But usually when we're talking too much, that's when our words get more and more foolish. Just through our constant talking. 
Words that are fitting, says heading D. Words that are kind, words that are appropriate, words that are pleasant. And then you see the references after that. E says words that are true. It is absolutely imperative that we speak true words. It is absolutely imperative that we are honest, that we are trustworthy, that people know that if we give them advice or reproof, that we're doing it out of pure motives, out of a genuine heart, that we're not out there just trying to hurt people, and that they can trust us because we're being true and honest. And finally, under the heading F, words that are carefully chosen. In other words, words that are well thought out, not just speaking off the top of our heads into every important situation we find ourselves. If you did that at work, if you were in the middle of an important situation at work, and you just came up with the first random stupid thing that went through your head, you're going to do all kinds of damage in the workplace. Well, that is also true of just life in general. When you're speaking to people about important things, make sure that you've taken the time to think about what you're saying. Let your words be exacting, let your words be honest, and let your words express wisdom, and let your words be few. And all of those things that I've just elucidated, you can find in all the verses that are listed on that chart. So hopefully in the future, you can go back to this chart. I hope that you'll find the chart helpful. If not, I've printed them up for nothing. So So now after all that, we are at Proverbs 15, verse 1. The previous stuff was not introduction. This is one of the rare occasions where I'm going to say that. A gentle answer turns away wrath. People know that verse. Even people who don't know their Bible know it as an adage. They just know that it's a a good idea. And they'll say, well, you know, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Very few people ever quote the second half of that verse. Because the second half of the verse is the contrast which says a harsh word stirs up anger. Okay, so there's, there's an important contrast to be had here between a gentle answer responding to somebody in a gentle way, in a calm way, in a thinking way versus responding to somebody with a harsh word that doesn't necessarily have to be a mean or an ugly word it can be an unthinking word it just simply means to say something to them that isn't to their greatest benefit to just start in on somebody with well i think and if that's the way that you approach people especially somebody who needs an answer i like solomon's use of the word answer here because it means to reply it can mean to instruct to reprove to help somebody if you're doing that if there's friction between you and somebody else if there's a potential for a fight then a gentle answer a well thought out answer is going to turn away their anger It's really hard to be angry at somebody who's being kind back to you. You go and yell at somebody. You give somebody a piece of your mind. You know, I'm telling you. You get all up in their grill and you tell them what you really think. All up in their grill. I am so hip. I know. (laughs) You get all up in their face and you're telling them what you think. And when you get done, if they respond with a kind word, especially if they respond with a 
I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. Well, what are they going to say next? Yeah, well, you did. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) It kind of diffuses the whole thing. But if you answer back with a harsh word, if you answer back with, yeah, well, who are you? Well, you know, you hurt me too. And, you know, I got a thing or two that I can tell you. Well, then forget it. It's going to turn into anger. You're just going to up the ante. The wrath is just going to go flying now. So wisdom, according to Solomon, is to make sure that you say something gentle in response to turn away the wrath. Now, curiosity gets the better of me at this moment because as I was saying that, Micah turned to his wife and said something, and they both grinned, and the curiosity is killing me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so with that, as kind of a a groundwork for what Solomon's going to say in this chapter, look at verse 18, which is also about this same idea, gentle versus harsh giving a good answer, a well-thought-out answer, rather than barking back at somebody. Look at verse 18. It says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Well, that's exactly what we read in verse 1. A harsh word is going to stir up anger. Same idea. Hot-tempered man stirs up strife. So then what is the better part of wisdom? Don't be hot-tempered. If you have a hot temper and then somebody comes at you, you're going to give it right back to them. And then you're going to end up doing all kinds of damage and you're going to hurt each other and you're going to say words you can never take back. And you're going to end up completely destroying that relationship and destroying your own reputation because people are going to know now that you can't be trusted. They can't bring things to you because they're just too hot tempered. A hot tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger person pacifies contention, says the NASB. That just means that he brings peace to an otherwise really tense situation where there's againstness, where there's fighting, where there's wrath and anger and self-will going on. If you're slow to anger, if you're slow to anger, you can come back with a pleasant response. If you're slow to anger, then you're able to count to 10, take some thought. What would be the good way to respond to this person now? They're all worked up. If I react to them the way they're coming at me, then everything is going to turn into just a great big verbal battle and we're going to do damage to each other. So just be slow to anger and that is going to pacify the contention between you. Don't be a hot-tempered man because that just stirs up strife. Look at verse 23. A man has joy, the NASB says, in an apt answer, in an appropriate answer. That brings joy to a person. When you answer somebody, verse 1 said, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a man has joy in an appropriate answer. How can you answer someone appropriately if you're not listening to them? You have to listen to them. You have to pay attention to what they're actually saying. And then once you have actually understood what their concern or what their anger, what their againstness is about, then you're able to give them an appropriate answer 
And by giving them an appropriate answer, that's going to bring joy instead of contention. Instead of making it more argumentative, you're going to bring about peace. The second half of verse 23 says, And how delightful is a timely word. Somebody who says something at the appropriate time, that timely word isn't necessarily meaning um, in the course of history as the chronos is moving forward, this belongs at this appropriate time. What it means is you say something to somebody that is appropriate to right then, that situation, you've heard them and you've answered back with something that is bringing peace to them, that is bringing quietness to them or joy to them. It is a, a timely response. So now let's put those three verses together. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger pacifies contention. And a man has joy in an apt or appropriate answer. And how delightful is a timely word. So you put all those together, and what are you getting? You're getting, think about what you're saying. Think about how you're speaking. Think about how you're using your words, and make sure that when there's contention, when there's strife, when there's wrath, make sure that you stop, you think, and then you say something in response that's appropriate and not just keeping the fight going. And that, by the way, as long as we're on that, that, by the way, requires a certain level of humility. This is something, again, that's talked about all the way through the Bible. If you think really highly of yourself, then it's going to be difficult for you to take the low seat when somebody's really up in your face and you want to vent your anger and you want to tell them what you think and you want to explain to them how wrong they are and you want to make sure that they get a good heap and help and dose of you It's really hard at that moment to ask the question, how important am I really? Am I really all that? And do I really have something to say of such value and importance that I really need to yell at this person? I really need to respond to them the way they responded to me. And I need to amp up this fight. And I need to get them more angry. And I need to destroy this relationship. The only way that you're going to be able to avoid that is if you stop thinking so highly of yourself. Stop thinking that you're so darned important. Stop thinking that whatever you're going to say is what really needs to be said in this argument. What really needs to be said in the argument are the words that bring peace, are the words that bring a gentle answer. That's what really needs to be said, but that can only be said by somebody who who has the appropriate spirit, who has the appropriate attitude within themselves. So you can see why Solomon would reckon that as wisdom, as understanding. Does that make sense? Yes. And that takes us to verse 2. And we're almost out of time. But, but that takes us to verse 2. Still about talking, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge, NASB says, makes knowledge acceptable. Some of your other translations will say, that the tongue of the wise 
commends knowledge, and I actually prefer that translation. The tongue of the wise, which simply means the speech of the wise person. When a wise person speaks, he commends knowledge. His example, the way that he speaks, makes that kind of knowledge acceptable, makes it something that other people would want. It is speaking well of knowledge, lifting up knowledge. But the mouth of fools spouts folly, the same way that a fountain spouts water. The mouth of a fool spouts foolishness. So the contrast is between the mouth, the tongue of the wise, And when the tongue of the wise is speaking and people hear it, he ends up making knowledge either acceptable, he's commending knowledge, he's demonstrating the value of knowledge, but the mouth of a fool just spouts off wildly. Look over at verse 14. It says, the mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge. That's what's in the purpose, the heart, the mind of an intelligent person They are seeking, looking after knowledge, but it's the second half that I wanted to compare to verse 2 here. The second half of verse 14 says, But the mouth of fools feeds on folly. It's the actual, it's the Hebrew word for grazes, the way cattle go out and graze. So you put those two ideas together, and Solomon's actually being really creative with his language here. Out of the mouth of fools spouts folly, and into the mouth of fools, they're grazing on folly. So they're ingesting silly, foolish things, and as a consequence, they're spouting foolish, silly things. Garbage in, garbage out. Whatever they take in, that's all they can put out. In other words, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, that's what's going on inside them. That's what they're living on. That's what they're ingesting. That's what they're grazing on. And so naturally, that's what they're going to spit out. The knowledgeable person, on the other hand, is constantly looking for knowledge. That's what an intelligent person does. And the mouth of fools will feed on follies. And that takes us to verse 3, which we've already looked at tonight. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. And at verse 4, suddenly Solomon is back to talking about talking. He's back to how you use your lips. A constant theme with him. The same way that he said a gentle answer turns away wrath, he now says a soothing tongue. Soothing speech, speaking well to people, speaking words that are an encouragement, that bring people along, and especially when people are hurting, when people are in pain, if you say soothing things to them, things that are comforting, things that are encouraging to them, well, that's like a tree of life. And that phrase, the tree of life, is referring to the Garden of Eden, since Solomon did not have access to the book of Revelation yet, where the tree of life is spoken of again. He has to be referring back to the Garden of Eden, where there was a tree that just simply kept people alive. And he says that a soothing tongue is like that tree of life. It encourages people. It lifts people up. It keeps people going. It keeps people alive, but... Perversion 
in a tongue crushes the soul, crushes the spirit. That word perversion is also translated in other places as deceitful or duplicity, duplicity in the tongue, which means lying to people, saying one thing when you know something else is the truth, being duplicitous, being deceitful. That is what Solomon is referring to as perversion here. That crushes the spirit. So the contrast is between the tree of life that lifts people up and keeps people going versus destroying them, just crushing their spirit, taking out all desire to live, all desire to be well, all hope for the future. You can do that with your mouth. You can do that by lying to people, by being duplicitous. Look, if somebody really trusts you, if somebody confides in you, if somebody believes that they can tell you the deepest hurts of their life, and they believe that they can trust you with that, and then you turn around and use it against them, if you use that to spread some rumors, if you use that in order to damage them or their reputation, if they then later in their life hear their own deepest secrets from somebody else, somebody they know they didn't tell, they know immediately you're the one who did it, and that is soul-crushing. That's like, wow, I thought they were my friend. I thought I could trust them. That's especially true when you're talking about somebody who purportedly is a person of God. Somebody who puts on, represents that they believe God, they trust God, therefore you can trust me. I'm like you, we're Christians, we can hang, you can trust me. Give me your deepest, darkest secrets. And then they turn around and do damage with it. It's destructive. It hurts, doesn't it? I saw Kenneth shaking his head because even the very thought of it, even as I was describing it, some of you could think of events in your life where you thought, oh yeah, I know, I've been through, I know that's really destructive. It really hurts. Solomon's being honest when he says that deceitful, duplicitous tongues crush the spirit. Verse 5, a fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is wise, is prudent, is thinking correctly. I think what Solomon is getting at here is that it's foolish to upset your own home life. If you're a fool, then you're going to cause trouble within the walls that you live in, among your own family. A fool is going to reject his father's discipline. And discipline, as he is going to say later in this chapter even, that discipline is a delight to somebody who understands it, somebody who has the fear of the Lord, is going to recognize discipline, reproof, as, as a way of improving themselves. But then a foolish person is going to reject that kind of discipline, but he who regards reproof is prudent, is good thinking. He's going to recognize that that reproof, that correction is of benefit to him and he's going to grow from it. In a very similar way, verse 6 says, much wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is in the income of the wicked. 
So the contrast is between the good things that come toward righteous people. He's calling that much wealth. That doesn't just have to be monetary wealth. That can just be contentment in living. And that's what's in the house of the righteous. But the income that wicked people get is trouble. So we can boil that down to righteous people are going to be more successful in this life both emotionally and I would say psychologically, if not financially, they're going to do better in this life than the wicked are going to do because everything that they accumulate to themselves is going to ultimately cause them trouble because they're going to constantly do damage because they're wicked. And verse 7 then goes back to, guess what? Your mouth and talking. The lips of the wise, the speaking of the wise, spread knowledge. That's very much like verse 2 that says the tongue of the wise makes knowledge commendable or acceptable. The lips of the wise spread knowledge. That means, by the way, that if you are intelligent, the knowledge that you have been blessed with in this lifetime, the knowledge that you have accumulated in this life, The God-given knowledge and the knowledge that you have accumulated through talking to other people, that knowledge is not given to you just so that you can sit in a corner somewhere and go, I'm smarter than all of you all, na-na-na-na-na-na. It means that you're supposed to spread that knowledge. You're supposed to speak that knowledge. You're supposed to say that knowledge in a commendable way so that people can see through your demonstration of knowledge that knowledge is commendable, that knowledge is acceptable. You're supposed to do that in an appropriate way, in a gentle way, in a wise way, but still in a commendable way so that people will see in you the value of that kind of knowledge. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but the heart of the fool's Or not so. I find this really, really interesting again because the contrast is between the heart of the fool and the lips of the wise. So what I said a few minutes ago, which is not unique to me, it's actually Jesus speaking, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's essentially what Solomon is getting at here. People are going to know you. People are going to understand you. People are going to assess you, trust you, have relationship with you based on what you say. But the things you say demonstrate what's really going on in your heart. If you're wicked in your heart, your words are going to betray you. You're going to say harsh things. You're going to say damaging things. And the reason that you're going to be that foolish in that way is because your heart is wicked. But if your heart is knowledgeable, if your heart is pure, if, you're, if in your heart there is the actual fear and reverence of God, then your words are going to betray you. You can't keep your love of God a secret for very long. It's going to come out on you. <laughs> People are going to figure it out eventually. And by the way, if you say that you're a God-fearing Christian person, and the people that you're with all the time don't know that about you, you're doing it wrong. Because your words ought to be the words of the knowledge of God, the fear of God, the reverence of God, your love of Christ, your love of God. That ought to be how you speak. That ought to be part of the wisdom that you demonstrate to people, that you spread among people. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but the heart 
of fools does not do so. Of course not. Because there's no wisdom in their heart. There's no wisdom for them to spread. There's no wisdom for them to advance because they themselves are foolish in their heart. And verse 8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. And I suppose we'll close on that for tonight because we also opened on that tonight. I hope to kind of plant that idea in your head. If you come away with nothing else tonight, I hope you recognize that the doing, the doing, the doing, the constant doing, the sacrifice, the religion, even if you do all of that stuff, but your heart is wicked, then even the stuff that you're doing that looks religious is ultimately abominable to God. But when the upright come to pray to him, when the righteous come to pray to him, recognizing their need of him, acknowledging their dependence on him, that becomes a delight to God. And so I will close with this question. Uh, Do you love God? Yes. I know he does now because he was the first one to answer loudly. The rest of you I'm not sure about. So if you love God, do you want to be a delight to him? Yes. You want to bring joy to the heart of God? Go pray to him. I have taught on prayers several times through the years and and may well do so again in the coming weeks after we get out of the book of Romans and uh, we start doing topical messages. But I encourage people to pray for a wide variety of reasons. But really, you all in the room here right now who say you love God don't need a better reason to go pray to him than that right there. The fact that you know that that delights him, that brings joy to God, that God wants to hear from you, that God gave you the opportunity through his son in his son's name to come and bring your thanksgiving and your promises and your, and your prayers and your needs and your wants. You're welcome to come bring all of that to him. I tell people all the time, go pray to God. And when you do, be specific. He's willing to listen. If it's your left foot and it's your heel and it's go tell them left foot it's my heel it's my go talk to God about what's going on in your life my job is hard God I'm running out of money God things are happening God life is difficult right now oh the headache God go and tell him all that don't assume that he knows it because number one he does know it but when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He said, your father knows you have need of all these things. Now go ask him. He already knows it, but he wants to hear it from you. And that brings delight to him because it's you recognizing your need, your dependence on him. And that brings him delight. So I I can't encourage you to pray any better than Solomon just did. Know that when... You pray to God, you are bringing joy to God. God wants to hear from you. Make sense? Yes. Is that an encouragement to you? Yes. Are you going to pray in the car on the way home tonight? (laughs) The way the streets have been lately, you probably ought to. Any questions about all that? Yes, sir. Here's a related thought. Not the sun go down on your head. 
Yeah, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Trying to live by that by 61 years. Hmm. Well, I think we all try. I think that's fair enough. I mean, if that's the goal, if that's the proclivity of your life, if you could reach perfection, who needs a savior? But we all try. Anything else? It's hard to keep the sun from going down. What'd you say? I said it's hard to keep the sun from going down. It's hard to keep the sun from going down. It's going down anyway. You better shape up. Yeah. Suddenly, I think we have a little insight into whatever that was between you and your husband. As long as she smiled. And she did. She smiled. But she smiled at me, so that's... <laughs> All right, nothing else? We're good? Well, then say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye! Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.